Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. Yo, BJ, I like what you did with your orcs. I, I did something, I changed them up in my world too, in the Wheel or Well campaign that's on pause. Uh, for me, my orcs come from the northern reaches and like the really arctic cold areas. And the empire, the big empire, the one that the players are fighting against, they use them as shock troops and they basically force them into you know, concentration camps where they then trade, train them to be these super elite shock troop fighters. And that's why they have such a fierce reputation. They're sort of like the uh, Sardaukar from Dune, where, you know, the Emperor throws all the Sardaukar onto the the prison planet and the, only the strongest become part of the Sardaukar. That's sort of where I took the inspiration from. But I'm going to call with another message about masks when I finish listening to your episode. Peace out. All right, let's talk about orc masks. So what first popped into my head when you started talking about it was instead of the masks having come from the outside, they're actually from the orcs to begin with. Maybe like a thousand years ago or something, the orcs were a peaceful farming pastoral community and then somehow someone, some way forced the orcs into fighting. And so they used these masks to originally hide their face from their god or from each other or whatever but they were ashamed by the act of fighting they it it went against everything their culture was and so they donned these masks to hide their identity when they were forced to kill and then over the course of the intervening years they have forged that shame into a pride and now it's something that they really take pride in i don't know to me that just seems a little more natural that it's coming from the inside instead of something coming from the outside being forced upon them but all right Yeah, and the next thing I would do, I would definitely consult with the player that's playing the orc and get their input on what sort of things they might be interested. It sounds like you're doing that, which is awesome. Um, You know, just kind of check in with them and see what they like because I've just found that players really like that, especially when you can bring that stuff into the game. They go bananas when that stuff happens. (laughs) But it sounds like you're doing that, man. Keep up the good work. Those are my thoughts on Orc Masks. Peace out. Thanks, Joe. That was uh, Joe Richter from the Hindsightless Podcast. Uh, I I like your ideas. That's a really cool idea. In fact, your actual idea is not that far off from the actual discussion I had with the player who's playing the Orc in the group as we were kind of tossing ideas around uh one thing he suggested was that it's just a recognition that sometimes you have to fight back you know you know that that maybe not that they're ashamed to fight but that there is a um a recognition that that that's a different way of being to be in a mindset where you can go to war and you can do harm and and have to fight with another sentient creature, another person, and potentially kill them. And that that's not kind of how you exist every day, that that's a special case. And so donning the mask is a way of saying, I'm stepping out of my normal self and I'm becoming my warrior self, or or maybe I am uh, 
connecting to some kind of uh, it comes some kind of spirit of of war or some kind of uh you know not not, not necessarily a god because that's not how it's working in the the, the world of Erd, but but something some spiritual entity or spiritual power that makes me a warrior and the mask is coming going on and coming off is that the symbol of that transition um so that you aren't the you that lives at home and, and with your among your family and your neighbors and, and your friends isn't uh stained by the deeds that you have to do when you go to war so that that was, it was just kind of a way of transitioning from one version of yourself to another and i thought that was an interesting concept too so we may play around with that one as well um so so yeah thanks joe that was great it seems to me I may not have called you about your orc mass and unicorn episodes. I, I think that's interesting what you do with the unicorn there. Of course, the, the that idea of the unicorn and virgins goes back well beyond D&D, right? That, you know, that, that's, it's, it's not like Gygax and them came up with that idea. But I, I agree that's definitely something you can adapt and update with, with modern gaming. But I, I like the conversation and, and the idea of... You roll that random monster, and now you, the GM, need to you know do those mental contortions of why it's in the area, which is a, a good reason to have those monster tables that you're pre-built per air, you know, per region, and, and then adjust slightly. There, you can still have oddball results in there, and it's always fun to have an oddball result because you get to you get to play with it. You know, it, it's always interesting to have one weird thing pop up now and then. You know, if I was going to do this, if I actually jammed a long-running game, I think what I would do is I would have my random encounter tables built per area, but then one of the results on the die, you know, say I have a D12 table for all those random encounters, right, or D20, excuse me, one of those results would be roll on the master table. So you'd have a master table with all the monsters or whatever weirdness you want, so normally when you're in the woods, you're going to encounter wood creatures, but there's always that 5% chance or whatever you're going to encounter something that doesn't belong there and is a total oddball and, and kind of like your unicorn. So I, I really like that. And I think when we make our regional tables for random encounters, we should always include that, you know, 5% chance or whatever percent chance. You should always have that one entry that'll take you to a different table, not just the surrounding regions, but something truly odd to mix things up. And that was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, I really enjoyed the way that the unicorn uh, encounter turned out. Um, thanks, thanks for the the compliments there. And and I will address the the, the lore, but Daniel's got a call coming up a- after yours that kind of speaks to the same thing. So I'll, I'll hold off on that till after I play his call. Um, but yeah, this, this, I, I think that's a really great idea that you've got your kind of one oddball on any table where it just shows you're in a, a weird, mystical, magical kind of world where something that is just completely out of place suddenly shows up. You know, a unicorn is rare, but finding it in an ancient forest is not inconsistent with what you kind of expect in D&D. But, you know, for them to find something truly bizarre and completely out of place, just if there's even some small chance, I think that's a good good point um, regarding the... Uh, using random tables and how you should set them up. So thanks for the call, and now we'll move on to one from Daniel. Hey, BJ. Daniel from Bandit's Keep. Uh, just listened to your unicorn 
episode. Yeah, I, th I think you handled that really well. Uh, well, I, I had to look at my BX book to actually see what it says, and it says a pure maiden, which, uh, you know, we I think we know what that means. Uh, and But I think that's not anything to do with the 70s or the 80s. That's like literally unicorn unicorn lore, you know, that, that you need to be a, uh, shall we say, a maiden uh, to keep this family friendly. But, um, yeah, I don't think, I never made them so they wouldn't talk to people. I generally... Uh, use that rule when I have used it as that's the only type of uh, character that can ride the unicorn. Although, Bobby in the D&D cartoon, <laughs> you know, he was a, a young boy, so I guess uh, I guess you can make whatever rules you want, right? But I think what you did there was really cool, and, and I do love how random encounters can really add something to your lore when you have to think on your feet like that and create something. Thank you, Daniel. That's Daniel from Bandit's Keep, YouTube channel and podcast. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and, and kind of echoing what, what the Jason had pointed out in the previous call that, you know, that, that isn't just something they came up with in the seventies or the eighties for D and D that is actually unicorn lore, um, from, from the middle ages. But, uh, I, I guess what I was thinking of, and maybe you didn't, didn't, didn't articulate well in, in, in the episode where I talked about it was, uh, you wouldn't see that today because even though that that is in fact that is the traditional lore of unicorns, it is still kind of a, you know, I don't think it fits well with sort of modern sensibilities on, on, on gender <laughs> and, and sexuality. So um, <coughs> unless you just want to say a, a, a person who is pure of heart, you know, you could probably convert it to that. But so I was just commenting on maybe the difference in modern sensibilities uh, and, and things we will change about long-standing lore on the, the legendary and mythical creatures we use in D&D as opposed to where we're just sort of kind of gone with the, the traditional folklore, you know, 30, 30, 40 years ago. Anyway, um, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you both. I love the way the, the random table kind of generated that and made me kind of have to think on my feet. And lo and behold, it happened again, and I will explain that as I go through my recap of the session we just wrapped up today. Okay, so it's a few minutes before midnight on Friday night. We just wrapped up our game about 25, 30 minutes ago uh, for, for this week. And uh, so I'm going to go give a little summary of what happened while it's still fresh in my mind. <clears throat> uh, so the party had left off last time having hauled a hobgoblin back and interrogated it learning a little more about the Troll King, um, <clears throat> discovering a unicorn kind of traipsing around in the forest, which when they consulted with Oliver, the the, the resident wizard of the trade keep, uh, you know, that, that it probably appeared because the the goblins are in the forest and the goblins are associated with the, the dark fae, the Troll King, and so a, a unicorn is more of a benevolent fae creature has sort of shown up uh, and been drawn in that way to, to, to counterbalance it. So that's what they learned. Uh, they decided, now that they've got some treasure under their belt, that they want to buy some guns. <laughs> so at least, at least uh, Harold the fighter and Durgosh the, uh, the orc decided to buy some guns. Um, <clears throat> they were offered access to the armory of the, 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 the Castellan's armory, but... Um, couldn't get firearms there. The 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 Castellan and and his his soldiers and the the 
the guards of the keep and his men at arms and stuff sort of guard those. Those are expensive and they're they're not as common as is, you know, you know, conventional melee hand weapons or, or bows and crossbows. So they're not going to give those up. You want a sword, you want a spear, you want a battle axe, you want a breastplate, fine, but you're not going to get any gunpowder or, or firearms from us. Uh, but because d- there's a a group of dwarves staying at the keep who have previously asked them for help and assistance in reclaiming their mine, um, and dwarves are the the in the mythic world of Erd, the the, the culture that invented and discovered. Uh, gunpowder and, and invented firearms um they decide to approach the dwarves to see if the dwarves can maybe provide them with with, with some weapons uh the dwarves uh, agree to do it they don't have a bunch on hand but they are able to to supply them with a a, a barrel of gunpowder and some pistols and uh uh bombs which are just small you know clay grenade like things that that you can hurl and explode. They don't do a whole lot of damage, uh, but but they are. I mean, they're they're they. It's, it's a bomb, so it hurts everybody kind of standing next to wherever it explodes. Um, and then uh, I think Harold acquired a blunderbuss as well. So uh, they, they they and they got the bandoliers that have like the you know the powder horns and the um where they can fill some small packets or, or vials for charges to just immediately reload. Otherwise, you're only going to get off one shot in most battles, and it's going to be over before you can possibly reload the gun. Um, but with these bandoliers, it's I've got it set up where they've got some um, prepackaged shots, and that comes from the uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, the, the appendix at the end of the book on, on incorporating firearms into a BX rule set. Um, so they, they they arm themselves so they can at least get off a, a couple of shots um, in battle. <clears throat> And they decide to go ahead and head, instead of going back to the goblins, they're going to go ahead and go to the, the dwarf mines. Uh, the dwarves had a sulfur mine uh, a couple of weeks ago. Bugbears had come in and, and ran all the dwarves out, um, which which they had already known this. The, the, the leader of the dwarven clan stood behind and stood his ground so while the other dwarves fled, so they assumed the bugbears captured him or probably more likely killed him. Um, his fate is unknown. Um, but the, the current leader of the clan negotiates to sell them some firearms and, and, and gunpowder, uh, and then they go. They kind of they kind of move the <laughs> the mines to the top of their to do list and head there. Uh, so they get to the mines. Uh, they go in and immediately encounter a group of kobolds who are posted up you know, a little bit into the cave entrance, and the kobolds' uh, reaction is not really hostile. It's cautious, but it's not hostile. They're just like, well, what, you know, humans. Uh, it turns out that Dolly, the dwarf, is the only one who can speak kobold. And I decided to have a little fun with the player. She says, who's in charge? Kobold says, yes. And, well, we'd like to meet him. And the kobold says, so you want to meet who? She says, I want to meet the person in charge. Okay, that that's who? I don't know. You tell me. And so we kind of did this little version of who's on first. <laughs> For, for a few minutes and then um anyway so so the kobolds don't let them come farther into the the mine but they do send somebody to fetch their leader the leader and some of his personal guards come up um the leader whose name is who and and explains to them that the they didn't run the dwarves out that they have been pressed into service by the goblin faction to continue mining sulfur 
Um, and that every few days, a, a group of goblinoids comes by and picks up a load of sulfur, you know, and then carts it off to a place where they don't know. They explain that they lived in a, a deeper deeper structure somewhere that kobolds are creatures of the underworld. They don't like it on the surface. They wouldn't just come into a surface-level cave and take over. They, they live deeper underground. Um, <clears throat> but that the, uh, the, the, the goblins invaded their lair and took their queen captive and are holding their queen captive and they are going to have to mine sulfur and going to work for the for the goblins until to, to ensure the safety of their queen uh, so they kind of ask you know we don't want to fight you you know but we're not going to stop we're not going to we're not going to stop mining we're not going to clear out for, for the dwarves we ha- we would happily go back home but we're not going to clear out until we know we can go home or until we know that our queen is safe uh, and so the party, of course, we'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll free your queen if we can, um, but they didn't quite get all the, the details on where the queen was located. Um, they don't know if they're holding them in their, their the, the, the kobolds underground, under dark lair, uh, or if the, the goblins have them somewhere else. So that's one thing that they're going to have to figure out is where is where is the kobolds queen um, being held. And, and they kind of deduce through through some lore checks and, and other just kind of interacting with these kobolds in more of a cordial manner that kobolds are kind of, you know, they're, they're small, they're weak, they're, they're dangerous in numbers because they can just swarm, but but just a small group of them aren't really a threat to anybody. And they tend to glob on to powerful figures and just become like sycophants. So, you know, with them, it's not just that they want, they, it's not just that they're saying, hey, could you go rescue our queen? They're just beside them. So our beloved queen, oh, she, she, we love her so much. And, and, and these awful goblins, you know, have taken her from us. Oh, please return our queen to us, please. You know, they're just, they're groveling um, because that's how kobolds survive in the world. <laughs> it's by groveling because they're, they're very, very weak um, until you kind of put them in a corner in a large group and then they can formula as i mentioned but so they averted any kind of conflict with the kobolds they don't really i don't know if they've really befriended them but they're at least not there's no hostility there they can probably come and go as long as they don't cause any trouble for the kobolds the kobolds please say you know if you whatever you're going to do don't drag us into this we'll stay out of your way but um we are we're not going to join you in your fight against the goblins um and, and unless we know like it's 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 over it's all, all kind of on the last leg, then they might join in the fight if, if needed. But they're probably just going to stay in this this cave and continue to mine until it's clear that they can go home, uh, or their queen is dead, and then they'll just run away. So, so they they have an interaction with the kobolds. So they decide that they're going to wait around, you know, even if it takes two or three days, for the next uh, group of goblinoids to come by and. Um, and, and, and collect some, some some sulfur, so they can, you know, maybe learn some more, figure some more out. Um, and boy, I, the unicorn! I almost skipped over the random encounter that I, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, that actually occurred on the way to the uh, the cobalt lair. What they did is they they traveled up the the road this time instead of all the way through the forest. They traveled up the road to the place where the the, the Castellan's men have have set up a, a blockade or, or a roadblock. You know that, that if you go farther than this, you're likely to get ambushed when you get out of sight of our position right now. So we've set this up here to warn travelers 
um, that, that beyond this point is where the orcs are ambushing people on the road. Um, and also we're kind of here to keep a watch in case they seem to be encroaching any farther out of the forest towards our territory. We, we've got a, we can, we can see them coming. Uh, so the, uh, the party decided they, they, they kind of talked to the guards and then they ventured directly into the forest from that point so that it was a much shorter walk through the actual forest to do it that way. Uh, steering clear of where the, the road is where they might encounter might encounter orcs um, and more into where the, they know the goblins to be, but they're kind of on the edge of that, that region of the forest. Uh, make a beeline for the mine and they, I rolled another random encounter for their walk through the forest. And this time it turned out to be a group of centaurs, 13 centaurs. Um, they didn't, you know, only one person noticed them initially. We kind of, kind of rolled a surprise check to see who was surprised. Durgosh, the orc, was the only one who, um, well, no one was surprised, but the centaurs weren't surprised either. So there was this kind of slow meeting and acknowledging of each other. Uh, and initially I said, well, you hear hoofbeats walking through the forest. So they think, oh, here's the unicorn again. Um, but they, they, what they wind up encountering is the, the first centaur that's kind of closest to them in proximity, and they kind of greet each other, um, you know, just just kind of a neutral. Again, I roll, I rolled everything random, so so the centaurs were not hostile. They were they were just kind of neutral in their reaction. Um, so they start talking to the centaurs, and again, I'm like, well, now why, why is there a group of you know thirteen centaurs right here, this close to to the action? Um, and so what I, what I came up with on the spot was, um, the centaurs live farther west into the forest, another area of the forest, kind of off the map for, for, for our map of the area. Uh, because the, this, they know that this region of the forest, the humans use it. There, there's a, it's not, there's only a handful of humans that actually normally live in the forest, but there are foresters and woodcutters that come there and it, it's kind of human territory so they they leave it alone and they stay in their part of the forest but um several days ago a unicorn was absorbed in their observed in their part of the forest and the elders of their tribe uh took that as a a sign that something important is going on and so they they told them to, to you know gather up a group of uh, scouts and, and and warriors and Head just just follow the unicorn and see where it goes and see what you can learn and of course they kind of trail the unicorn into the human area and then realize there are no humans here the places we would find humans like the, the wood charcoal burner camp is vacated um, where are all the humans and then pretty quickly after that they begin to encounter goblins and hobgoblins in the forest and uh, you know kill kill as many as they can and they're they're, they're just kind of slowly making the rounds in the area and they're going to head back and report in back where they live in their area. Um, so they, they agree to travel to the mine entrance. They don't, you know, everybody kind of agrees because they're basically from the waist down, they're a horse. They're probably not going to be much good in a cave. Um, but they do kind of escort the party. So in case they encounter any goblins, uh, there's, you know, they can both just gang up <laughs> and, and, and fight alongside each other against any goblins. They don't encounter any. So the, the, they bid farewell to the centaurs, and then they go down in and they encounter the kobolds. Um, okay, fast forward back to after interacting with the kobolds. They camp out a day, set an ambush um, where they allow... What happens is five bugbears show up. They've got two human captives pulling an empty cart. 
they allow the bugbears and the humans to go into the cave to kind of do their normal business, collect the, you know, fill, fill the cart with, with sulfur ore. And I don't think there's such a thing as sulfur ore with sulfur. Um, and then they sort of set up, they've got kind of one person hiding in it in, in the tree watching. They climb down as soon as the bugbears are going to the cave, run and get the others. They come back, they set up an ambush, um, which involves uh, hiding, hiding kind of around, <laughs> hiding in the trees. <coughs> when the bugbears kind of come out, with, and two humans dragging the cart, Harold throws one of his bombs. Um, two bugbears that are kind of in the lead get get in the blast. It doesn't do a bunch of damage because they make their dexterity save. Um, so, but it does set off combat. Meanwhile, Celestina, the wizard, had climbed up a tree and was also preparing a sleep spell, her ubiquitous sleep spell, and she rolled very well, and all the bugbears fell asleep. So no combat wound up being necessary. They, they coup de grod. Um, all of the above. Actually, I, I take that back. Dolly got to stab one with, his, with her spear once uh, before the spell went off, and uh, they fell asleep, so the party won initiative and were able to execute their plan without any trouble. Um, so they they coup de gras the bugbears, and then they start asking the humans, you know, what's what's going on. Well, it turns out these two humans, one is from the, from the uh, a forester, another one is a caravan guard who was captured coming down the road. Um, which, if you're paying attention to everything has been set up, he he was captured by orcs, but now he's in the, a prisoner of the bugbears. Um, they explain they're kept in the, the goblin caves um, and that the, the, the hobgoblins basically push them out in the morning and there's a group of bugbears waiting to escort them to do their duty. Um, and so they don't actually live in any kind of cave with bugbears. The bugbears kind of show up and pick up prisoners and take them out to, to put them to work um, hauling sulfur back to the goblin's cave and then, then that's they get put back in their you know, shackles, and, and they don't know what the goblins are doing with the sulfur. But, uh, so that's where we left off with, with their sort of increased knowledge of the uh, what, what's going on. So some, some questions answered and, and a couple more questions to be answered. Um, you know, how, how did somebody get captured, <coughs> supposedly by orcs, but are now in the hands of goblins? You know, are those guys working together? How'd that, how'd that happen? Um, although they haven't asked that particular character much about it, although he did agree that as a former caravan guard, he's a trained soldier, and if they could give him a little time to rest, get get some 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 meals in, into his belly and recuperate, he would be interested in being employed as a, a henchman for the for the party. Um, so the party's now got two potential hirelings um, that they can they can work with. They've got a a guy who's more of a soldier, and then you know Jessup, the guy that was kind of a it's kind of shifty, nervous treasure hunter who's kind of become a kind of a valet for him, but has the potential to to maybe become a little more of a of an actual um, retainer of some kind if they want to want to promote him and, and invest a little more in him. Um, in fact, they did that. They asked him to kind of set up and to keep watch, and he was like, "You guys don't pay me as an adventurer. I'm here to like start the campfire, cook the food, load the wagon." If you want me to get in harm's way, we need to renegotiate the terms of my employment. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, so they head back to the keep, and I rolled one last random encounter, and they got a tarantella. I believe that's how you say it. It's a, it's not a tarantula. It looks like a giant tarantula, but it's actually magical in nature. Um, and again, they roll. Neither party's surprised. The thing is just climbing up a tree. Um, there's enough distance between them that they could probably just go about their business, but Celestina, the wizard, rolls you know really well on her lore check and is like hey you know that that that's not just a giant spider that's a magical creature it may have some magical properties and so they said well let's let's kill this thing and maybe we can use its parts we'll take it back to Olivar the the wizard and maybe he can he can tell us a way to um either make use of its parts or we can trade it for some other kind of something to him for something else other kind of magical uh a scroll or an item or something anyway um Again, they rolled really well on their initiative and their attacks, and the, the spider rolled really poorly on... Uh, and I was very disappointed that the spider didn't attack anybody because uh, a Tarantella's magical thing is, in addition to its bite being poison, if you fail your save, you're, it's basically a a basic version of... Is it Odaluki's Irresistible Dance, that that spell? That I, think, I think it first shows up in AD&D. You basically have to dance this twitchy, painful, jerky, spasmic dance for, for so many rounds. And then once you start doing it, anybody who can see you do it, it's kind of infectious. They have to save or they start doing it too. So, you know, it, it, that could have been a pretty funny encounter, but they killed the monster before we could, uh, before it could inflict any of that on them. So, uh, but again, another, that would have been a fun random encounter. Uh, it turned out to be just kind of a, it's kind of an ordinary random encounter. Anyway, they uh, they make it back to the the keep, and that's where we left off. And that ne- next time they'll um, they'll have to decide how they're going to go about getting the answers to some of these outstanding questions, and maybe getting their first couple of retainers. They are um, the two clerics are getting pretty close to leveling up to level two. Everybody else is is about halfway there, uh, give or take. Um, we don't have any thieves in the party. If we had, a, if one of them was a thief, if one of these guys was a thief, they would, they would, they would have probably reached second level by now. If we had a thief, in addition to all these, I don't think so, because you'd have to split the XP more ways, and so they they wouldn't be as far along. Anyway, so that is what happened in this last um, last adventure, and so I will uh, wrap it up here, and uh, I'm going to be taking some vacation time the next couple weeks so i may not have i definitely won't have a game to review and i may not have time to put out any thoughts on any other stuff but if something strikes me i'll 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 put out an episode but it may may be a week or two before i put out a new one after this one posts i forgot to mention a couple of things in my my recap um that i want to add here as a quick addendum um the kobolds are underworld creatures. So uh, I may maybe I did mention this. I'm, I can't remember if I mentioned it or made it clear earlier. They're creatures of the underworld. So this mine that they're in is a cave, but it's a cave that's part of the, the overworld, the world of mortal beings. Um, so we've encountered overworld creatures. We've encountered creatures associated with the other world, you know, fey creatures. And now, now the party's encountered an actual underworld type of 
being, um, you know, in the underworld is, is a world full of monsters and things that people aren't meant to encounter and uh, deal with. So, so the kobolds come from there. Um, <clears throat> so somewhere nearby, there's a passage to a, you know, that some kind of must be a, closer to the underworld enough for kobolds to layer there. So I just, I just wanted to point that out that we've, we've now kind of added the third part of the, the setting, the third world within the world of Erd. Um, so a little, little setting over there to set some stuff up, um, with kobolds. Uh, and I, and I may do a, a longer session on a longer episode on kobolds and underworld stuff in, in the, in the near future. Um, also the, the kobolds had mentioned, I don't think, I don't think this was in the recap that, that I gave earlier in this episode. The kobolds mentioned that when the, the goblin faction came in and took over their lair and captured their queen, um, they also had gnolls with them. So you had goblins, hobgoblins, and bugbears, but there were gnolls. Gnolls are not goblinoids. They're a completely separate type of creature, and they're, you know, they're very... Um, if you're familiar with D&D, you know, gnolls are these kind of bestial. They have these kind of hyena-like heads and uh, are just completely vicious, ravenous. Um, and so... Uh, I kind of planted that out there, so hopefully players will inquire you know, when they get a chance to sit down with with the wizard or some more seasoned adventurers at the at the keep, um, or or maybe we, I can have them make some knowledge rolls to, to get a little more information on the nature of gnolls and their kind of position in the setting. And I won't I won't say, state that here. I'm going to let the players discover it uh, for themselves, and then I'll, I may talk a little more about it. Uh, in another episode, maybe the one with kobolds, or maybe when we get into some other reasons for the origins of gnolls. But uh, I'll let that be a surprise for the players, and then I'll I'll bring it back to the podcast after they've played around with it a little bit. And that's it for this episode of The Arcane Alienist. I want to thank Dave Bone for the cover art that I use for the episodes. Check out ironseer.com and the music is Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, Give me a call sometime through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website, and I'll be back in the future with another episode.